We all woke up in the middle of the night. We walked out into the town. We looked up at the clock tower in the town square. The black clock. It didn't ring, but we all heard it. Black Clock Audio Tales. Hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. This month, more Anne Radcliffe. The castles... Uh, my, I don't have my glasses on. Anthony and Dundane, uh, our reader this month will clarify the name. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode is brought to you by uh, Uncle Owen's Goat Farm, uh, finest chef in the region. Uh, you can pick that up at A1 Grocery. And also, hey, Oblivions, our patio is open during the pandemic. And as we all know, Oblivions has the biggest patio uh, for Oktoberfest, St. Patty's Days. And if you want to rent it for your next get-together in the upcoming months when we're able to have get-togethers, they are, yeah, no, you can, you can rent the uh, beer garden and it, it'll all be great. Anyway, thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, 1130 AM, KZOM, the place to be and be seen. That is such a stupid slogan. Why do we... You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Lauren Randall. The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 2. The following day was appointed for the celebration of an annual festival given by the Earl to his people, and he would not suffer Alan to depart. The hall was spread with tables, and dance and merriment resounded through the castle. It was usual on that day for the clan to assemble in arms, on account of an attempt, the memory of which it was meant to perpetuate, made two centuries before, by an hostile clan to surprise them in their festivity. In the morning were performed the martial exercises, in which emulation was excited by the honorary rewards bestowed on excellence. The countess and her lovely daughter beheld, from the ramparts of the castle, the feats performed on the plains below. Their attention was engaged, and their curiosity excited by the appearance of a stranger who managed the lance and the bow with such exquisite dexterity as to bear off each prize of chivalry. It was Alan. He received the palm of victory, as was usual from the hands of the earl, and the modest dignity with which he accepted it charmed the beholders. The earl honored the feast with his presence, at the conclusion of which each guest arose, and seizing his goblet with his left hand and with his right striking his sword, drank to the memory of their departed lord. The hall echoed with the general voice, Osbert felt it strike upon his heart, the alarum of war. The people then joined hands and drank to the honor of the son of their late master. Osbert understood the signal, and overcome with emotion, every consideration yielded to that of avenging his father. He arose and harangued the clan with all the fire of youth and indignant virtue. As he spoke, the countenance of his people flashed with impatient joy. A deep murmur of applause ran through the assembly. And when he was silent, each man, crossing his sword with that of his neighbor, swore that sacred pledge of union, never to quit the cause in which they now engaged, till the life of their enemy had paid the debt of justice and of revenge. 
In the evening, the wives and daughters of the peasantry came to the castle and joined in the festivity. It was usual for the countess and her ladies to observe from a gallery of the hall the various performances of dance and song, and it had been a custom of old for the daughter of the castle to grace the occasion by performing a Scotch dance with the victor of the morning. This victor now was Alan, who beheld the lovely Mary led by the earl into the hall and presented to him as his partner in the dance. She received his homage with a sweet grace. She was dressed in the habit of a highland lass, and her fine auburn tresses, which waved in her neck, were ornamented only with a wreath of roses. She moved in the dance with the light steps of the graces. Profound silence reigned through the hall during the performance, and a soft murmur of applause arose on its conclusion. The admiration of the spectators was divided between Mary and the victorious stranger. She retired to the gallery, and the knight concluded in joy to all but the earl and to Alan. But very different was the source and the complexion of their inquietude. The mind of Osbert revolved the chief occurrences of the day, and his soul burned with impatience to accomplish the purposes of filial piety. Yet he dreaded the effect which the communication of his designs might have on the tender heart of Matilda. On the morrow, however, he resolved to acquaint her with them, and in a few days to rise and prosecute his cause with arms. Alan, whose bosom till now had felt only for others' pains, began to be conscious of his own. His mind, uneasy and restless, gave him only the image of the high-born Mary. He endeavored to exclude her idea, but with an effort so faint that it would still intrude. Pleased yet sad, he would not acknowledge even to himself that he loved. So ingenious are we to conceal every appearance of evil from ourselves. He arose with the dawn and departed from the castle, full of gratitude and secret love, to prepare his friends for the approaching war. The earl awoke from broken slumbers and summoned all his fortitude to encounter the tender opposition of his mother. He entered her apartment with faltering steps, and his countenance betrayed the emotions of his soul. Matilda was soon informed of what her heart had foreboded, and overcome with dreadful sensation, sunk lifeless in her chair. Osbert flew to her assistance, and Mary and the attendants soon recovered her to sense and wretchedness. The mind of Osbert was torn by the most cruel conflict. Filial duty, honor, revenge commanded him to go. Filial love, regret, and pity entreated him to stay. Mary fell at his feet, and clasping his knees with all the wild energy of grief besought him to relinquish his fatal purpose and save his last surviving parent. Her tears, her sighs, and the soft simplicity of her air spoke a yet stronger language than her tongue, but the silent grief of the countess was still more touching, and in his endeavors to soothe her, he was on the point of yielding his resolution when the figure of his dying father arose to his imagination and stamped his purpose irrevocably. The anxiety of a fond mother presented Matilda with the image of her son bleeding and ghastly and the death of her lord was revived in her memory with all the agonizing grief that sad event had impressed upon her heart, the harsher characters of which the lenient hand of time had almost obliterated. 
So lovely is pity in all her attitudes. That fondness prompts us to believe she can never transgress. But she changes into a vice when she overcomes the purposes of stronger virtue. Sterner principles now nerved the breast of Osbert against her influence and impelled him on to deeds of arms. He summoned a few of the most able and trusty of the clan and held a council of war, in which it was resolved that Malcolm should be attacked with all the force they could assemble and with all the speed which the importance of the preparation would allow. To prevent suspicion and alarm to the baron, it was agreed it should be given out that these preparations were intended for assistance to the chief of a distant part, that when they set out on the expedition, they should pursue for some time a contrary way, but under favor of the knight should suddenly change their route and turn upon the castle of Dunbane. In the meantime, Alan was strenuous in exciting his friends to the cause, and so successful in the undertaking as to have collected, in a few days, a number of no inconsiderable consequence. To the warm enthusiasm of virtue was now added a new motive of exertion. It was no longer simply an attachment to the cause of justice which roused him to action. The pride of distinguishing himself in the eyes of his mistress and of deserving her esteem by his zealous services gave combined force to the first impulse of benevolence. The sweet thought of deserving her thanks operated secretly on his soul, for he was yet ignorant of its influence there. In this state he again appeared at the castle and told the earl that himself and his friends were ready to follow him whenever the signal should be given. His offer was accepted with the warmth of kindness it claimed, and he was desired to hold himself in readiness for the onset. In a few days the preparations were completed. Alan and his friends were summoned. The clan assembled in arms, and, with a young earl at their head, departed on their expedition. The parting between Osbert and his family may be easily conceived, nor could all the pride of expected conquest suppress a sigh which escaped from Alan when his eyes bade adieu to Mary, who, with the countess, stood on the terrace of the castle, pursuing with aching sight the march of her beloved brother, till distance veiled him from her view. She then turned into the castle weeping and foreboding future calamity. She endeavored, however, to assume an appearance of tranquility, that she might deceive the fears of Matilda and soothe her sorrow. Matilda, whose mind was strong as her heart was tender, since she could not prevent this hazardous undertaking, summoned all her fortitude to resist the impressions of fruitless grief, and to search for the good which the occasion might present. Her efforts were not vain. She found it in the prospect which the enterprise afforded of honor to the memory of her murdered lord, and of retribution on the head of the murderer. It was evening when the earl departed from the castle. He pursued a contrary route, till night favored his designs. When he wheeled towards the castle of Dunbane, the extreme darkness of the night assisted their plan, which was to scale the walls, surprise the sentinels, burst their way into the inner courts, sword in hand, and force the murderer from his retreat. They had trod many miles the dreary wilds, unassisted by the least gleam of light, when suddenly their ears were struck with the dismal note of a watch-bell, which chimed the hour of the night. Every heart beat to the sound. They knew they were near the abode of the baron. 
they halted to consult concerning their proceedings, when it was agreed that the Earl with Allen and a chosen few should proceed to reconnoitre the castle, while the rest should remain at a small distance, awaiting the signal of approach. The Earl and his party pursued their march with silent steps. They perceived a faint light, which they guessed to proceed from the watch-tower of the castle, and they were now almost under its walls. They paused a while in silence to give breath to expectation, and to listen if anything was stirring. All was involved in the gloom of night, and the silence of death prevailed. They had now time to examine, as well as the darkness would permit, the situation of the castle and the height of the walls, and to prepare for the assault. The edifice was built with gothic magnificence upon a high and dangerous rock. Its lofty towers still frowned in proud sublimity, and the immensity of the pile stood a record of the ancient consequence of its possessors. The rock was surrounded by a ditch, broad but not deep, over which were two drawbridges, one on the north side, the other on the east. They were both up, but as they separated in the center, one half of the bridge remained on the side of the plains. The bridge on the north led to the grand gateway of the castle, that on the east to a small watch-tower. These were all the entrances. The rock was almost perpendicular with the walls, which were strong and lofty. After surveying the situation, they pitched upon a spot where the rock appeared most accessible, and which was contiguous to the principal gate, and gave signal to the clan. They approached in silence, and gently throwing down the bundles of faggot which they had brought for the purpose into the ditch, made themselves a bridge over which they passed in safety, and prepared to ascend the heights. It had been resolved that a party, of which Allen was one, should scale the walls, surprise the sentinels, and open the gates to the rest of the clan, which, with the earl, were to remain without. Allen was the first who fixed his ladder and mounted. He was instantly followed by the rest of his party, and with much difficulty and some hazard they gained the ramparts in safety. They traversed a part of the platform without hearing the sound of a voice or a step, profound sleep seemed to bury all. A number of the party approached some sentinels who were asleep on their post. Them they seized, while Allen, with a few others, flew to open the nearest gate and to let down the drawbridge. This they accomplished, but in the meantime the signal of surprise was given, and instantly the alarm bell rang out, and the castle resounded with the clang of arms. All was tumult and confusion. The earl, with part of his people, entered the gate. The rest were following. Then suddenly the portcullis was dropped, the bridge drawn up, and the earl and his people found themselves surrounded by an armed multitude, which poured in torrents from every recess of the castle. Surprised, but not daunted, the earl rushed forward, sword in hand, and fought with a desperate valor. The soul of Allen seemed to acquire new vigor from the conflict. He fought like a man panting for honor, and certain of victory. Wherever he rushed, conquest flew before him. He, with the earl, forced his way into the inner courts in search of the baron, and hoped to have satisfied a just revenge. 
and to have concluded the conflict with the death of the murderer. But the moment in which they entered the courts, the gates were closed upon them. They were environed by a band of guards, and after a short resistance in which Allen received a slight wound, they were seized as prisoners of war. The slaughter without was great and dreadful. The people of the baron, inspired with fury, were insatiate for death. Many of the earl's followers were killed in the courts and on the platform. Many, in attempting to escape, were thrown from the ramparts, and many were destroyed by the sudden raising of the bridge. A small part, only of the brave and adventurous band who had engaged in the cause of justice and who were driven back from the walls, survived to carry the dreadful tidings to the countess. The fate of the earl remained unknown. The consternation among the friends of the slain is not to be described, and it was heightened by the unaccountable manner in which the victory had been obtained. For it was well known that Malcolm had never, but when war made it necessary, more soldiers in his garrison than feudal pomp demanded. Yet on this occasion, a number of armed men rushed from the recesses of his castle, sufficient to overpower the force of a whole clan. But they knew not the secret means of intelligence which the baron possessed. The jealousy of conscience had armed him with apprehension for his safety, and for some years he had planted spies near the castle of Othlin to observe all that passed within it and to give him immediate intelligence of every warlike preparation. A transaction so striking and so public as that which had occurred on the day of the festival, when the whole people swore to avenge the murder of their chief, it was not probable would escape the valiant eye of his mercenaries. The circumstance had been communicated to him with all the exaggerations of fear and wonder, and had given him the signal for defense. The accounts sent him of the military preparations which were forming convinced him that this defense would soon be called for, and laughing at the idle tales which were told him of distant wars, he hastened to store his garrison with arms and with men, and held himself in readiness to receive the assailants. The baron had conducted his plans with all that power of contrivance which the secrecy of the business demanded and it was his design to suffer the enemy to mount his walls and to put them to the sword when the purpose of this deep-laid stratagem had been nearly defeated by the drowsiness of the sentinels who were posted to give signal of their approach. The fortitude of Matilda fainted under the pressure of so heavy a calamity. She was attacked with a violent illness which had nearly terminated her sorrows and her life and had rendered unavailing all the tender cares of her daughter. These tender cares, however, were not ineffectual. She revived, and they assisted to support her in the severe hours of affliction, which the unknown fate of the earl occasioned. Mary, who felt all the horrors of the late event, was ill-qualified for the office of a comforter. But her generous heart, susceptible of the deep sufferings of Matilda, almost forgot its own distress in the remembrance of her mother's. Yet the idea of her brother surrounded with the horrors of imprisonment and death would often obtrude itself on her imagination, with an emphasis which almost overcame her reason. 
she had also a strong degree of pity for the fate of the brave young Highlander who had assisted with a disinterestedness so noble in the cause of her house. She wished to learn his further destiny, and her heart often melted in compassion at the picture which her fancy drew of his sufferings. End of chapter 2、hey、everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of Black Clock Audio Tales. I've been your host, DB Spitzer. Check out next week's episode, you know, two a week. Hey,、uh, and for those who are listening,、uh, if you don't listen to some episodes, you can listen to others. Quick update I'm no longer the mayor. Town elected a new mayor.、Uh, I am Pickman. A、uh, reclusive chap hangs out in the mayor's residence, doesn't really have me do a lot of stuff, is just trying to、uh, get people to、uh, care about Oleander, greenify it, keep it clean,、um, get the cemetery back up to snuff, get people wanting to live and die in Oleander. So, hey, you know, business is huge. All right. We'll see you next time. And remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what's going on, and we'll tell you what's going on with our friends. All right, thank you again, and we'll talk to you later. All right.